This is Design School as a podcast for the growing designer. Those interested in design, starting their career in design, or looking for a reminder of why they went into design. On this episode, we talk with Anu Yadev, head of design at Aurora Solar in San Francisco, California. Anu is a multidisciplinary practitioner across fine art, design, fashion technology, and business. Yadev discusses how her approach to design brings diverse and unique voices to a team to shape new ideas, how gaining knowledge helps shed fear, and gives us a reminder of how design is inherently an act of service. Dev, thank you so much for joining us on This is Design School today. I'm so glad we were able to connect with you while we're here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So I wanted to start our conversation off with how you found design and kind of what your early journey through that was to get you sort of where you are today. And you can, of course, tell that story and do some little side conversations along the way. But Awesome. Well, I kind of stumbled upon design. I, I was doing sculpture in school and my sculpture teacher said hey you don't have to become a doctor and I was destined to become a doctor and he sent me this small newspaper cutting of this fashion design school that was really big at the time in India I just applied to it got in and after I got in then I learned what design is (laughs) and I was delightfully surprised to have found this medium where the, the way that we learn was fundamentally different than the way that traditional academics was treated and I loved this kind of visual uh, learning this kind of abstract thinking that I never had access to and yeah I've since then I've done different kinds of design work I studied to be a fashion designer worked as an art director in ad agencies and then started my own company I used to make costumes (laughs) and then stumbled into design thinking and innovation work I went to CCI here in San Francisco That's what got me to this country. Since then, you know, my idea of design has just forever and forever expanded. Now I I lead design at a fashion tech company. We make all kinds of softwares that are needed during the garment manufacturing in the fashion industry. So yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. When you first took that leap in in, in venture into to fashion design. What was it like figuring out that fashion design wasn't what you wanted to do, but yet design was still appealing to you? I really appreciate that question, and maybe I'll be criticized for saying that, but I think it's different reality when you're studying fashion design as a student and when you work in the industry, garment manufacturing industry. I think there's a severe lack of creative integrity simply because the shelf life of artifacts is so short. And and everything operates on, hey, this is selling, so we should also make this, a version of this. I remember our design director giving us like 10 different copies of this outfits he saw in Paris. And we're like, I want 10 different versions of this top, 10 different versions of this dress. That was one. And, and my foray in, in that 
role as a fashion designer was in a country like India, where at that point, this was in 2007, there was a lot of production and India's economy was booming for in the export industry. The factories felt as if it, it was just so horribly regulated. The, mm. There was so much pollution. The water was being thrown into the rivers and the lakes. and Untreated. And yeah, and there were so many regulations that the factories were supposed to have, but obviously they were not implemented. Mm-hmm. There are so many places that brands get their clothes manufactured that they don't even know because the factories that they're giving their clothes to manufacture give it to some other fabricators Mm -hmm. where none of these regulations are followed. Honestly, there's no way for those companies to track. Because sometimes factories take an order and then obviously they're overwhelmed and then they outsource that to other people. There were multiple reasons why I left that industry specifically, but I liked the ethos of design that I grasped from it, which is this appreciation for beauty, appreciation for expression. I think those are the gifts that I carried forward in my career uh, in, as an innovation strategist, as a design thinker, as a UX designer. Uh, and sometimes, you know, in, in the Bay Area, we can be so biased towards being utilitarian in our, in our designs and, okay, functional, uh, but I think we need to bring back that idea of beauty and expression that other forms of design actually still practice. So what was that process of discovery of finding something else? Honestly, like, I can only speak for myself, but you can, you can only discover that you have an affinity towards something by simply trying that. And I think uh, I was a little bit reckless. I just threw myself in different situations, different jobs. I took up a job as an art director, and in the ad agency, I was at DDB, and everyone was like, what is this girl doing? She's a fashion designer. She's never had any experience in ads. What is she doing? And I think, honestly, just by being there and by being the different one, you bring fresh ideas to the table. And I was part of this group in that ad agency. It was a stand-up comedian, a fashion designer, and a, a coder. And Wait, you were a stand-up comedian? No, no. I, I was part of a team. Oh, okay. I was okay. part of I a was team. Like, uh, no, I was going to say, we, we are going to talk about something else. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm definitely not funny. <laughs> no, you're on a team with the... Yeah, that means... So we were only supposed to think of, like, ideas for, like, awards, ads that are made for awards. And mm-hmm. I think it. I was fortunate to get that entry point in ads, but it really expanded my thinking. And I think my understanding of how to speak to the market, how to speak to audience was informed by this old school, traditional ad agency world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, we were really good at crafting the message. We were really good at creating different mediums of messaging. Um, And I I was part of that. And that really expanded the mediums through which I could express myself as a designer. And it removed any sort of self-inhibitions when it came to, yeah, I can try this and do that. I think once you try this, try something and do even mildly good at it, your fear of trying just slowly goes away. And that's how I kind of just did multiple things. And as I started having this kind of very uh, all-over-the-place kind of career, I realized that if you have the fundamentals of designs well in place, no matter what medium you go to, you can actually... Minus the craft, you have to learn the craft and the skills, but you can actually do a good job of it. 
um, and I do believe that as designers, we have that common platform and that gives us amazing mobility to traverse from one domain to the other and to the other. And that ultimately helped me in consulting as well because you're not afraid of trying different kind of professions and when you're consulting, you're trying, you're catering to different kind of domains, different kind of clients. I think designers are, have that beautiful gift actually to be able to navigate in different kind of environments and workplaces and mediums. I mean, one thing I've always appreciated is you were talking about kind of like this interdisciplinary team you worked on. And in a sense, that interdisciplinary mindset helped you make that jump over, mm -hmm. right, and explore new things. And sometimes I wonder whether that appreciation for interdisciplinary mindsets or like teams versus kind of over hyper specialization in a particular area. Do you feel like that is something that is shifting in either direction of mm -hmm. being more appreciative of that interdisciplinary mindset or more in the route of specialization? I think that we are moving towards a culture, creative culture, where we are more and more honoring people who bring diverse point of views. Mm -hmm. At least in design, that is happening. You mm -hmm. know, We're not only welcoming people with diverse backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, but we're also welcoming people who have different backgrounds in terms of industries, in terms of craft, in terms of um, uh, expertise, and sometimes even subject matter experts, you mm -hmm. know. And I love that shift. I love that, and even when I moved from India to here, there was such a big cultural difference that I loved, you know. In India, people appreciate mastery, depth of a craft, depth of an industry, and that was, even though I moved a lot in India, but I think in the States, in California, in San Francisco, we, I felt like there was more of an open mindset to welcome people with different perspective. As long as you do good work, people mm -hmm. don't care about what all did you do. I think that's, that's a gift that I think we should remember that America gives to people, mm -hmm. is that ability to show your merit by doing the work that you can do well. I, and, and I've been in teams, you know, where my design team was also working with the director of health of a, of a healthcare startup, and we were designing features together. And I do not think that if design team was just in a corner designing those features without that input from that doctor, we could have come up with those compelling solutions. And I think designers do not and should not work in isolation. Mm -hmm. uh, we should not just speak to our customers, uh, which is the whole premise of user research, but we should equally consider people who are experts in the domain. Yeah, I think that's one thing I felt like I began to learn more as I developed in my careers. I felt like young when I was in school, being younger, there was this emphasis of like, oh, like the benefit I bring of a designer is like this beginner's mindset and walking into a situation and being able to absorb the information and look at it in a different way than people who are in it day to day. But I think that, at least at the time, was at the devalue of the subject matter experts that are in it in the day to day, that mm -hmm. understand all the, uh, I always have a hard time saying this word, that understand all the intricacies, <laughs> intricate, Intricacies. Yes, <laughs> of, uh, of that space that mm -hmm. take years to mm -hmm. really understand. And then I felt like shifting that perspective of like, actually it's the pairing of, yeah. you know, bringing, bringing that mindset that you create in the process of going about doing that and pairing it with experts mm -hmm. 
is even more powerful than either one separately. I absolutely agree. After that, at a period of time, I know you went back to school. What was the decision-making process to go back to school, and what did you feel like that prepared you to do? Yeah, I went back to school because I felt like I wanted to understand the language of design and apply it for business. I was an entrepreneur, as a, and I realized that creatives are not equipped to run their businesses well. And I wanted to learn business, and I also wanted to learn business with the lens of um, design thinking. And I found this very unique program in, at CCA, uh, and I had read Nathan Shedroff's books on experience design, and that just created a beautiful pull for me. And I'm like, yeah, I wanted to learn business, uh, and I want to understand this ethos of design thinking and how you can apply that for different businesses. And what I learned in the program was not just, not only I came out of it with significantly better business understanding of concepts, but also just examining everything uh, that we observe around it, every observation we make, whether it's political, whether it's cultural, with, with a critical lens. And with, I came out with so many frameworks that I could use and apply to any, any problem, whether it's a nonprofit problem, whether it's a for-profit business problem, whether it came to designing services, whether it came to designing uh, a physical space experience. And I think that, again, I go back to whenever you learn something, you're, you're eliminating, you're shedding one more layer of fear mm. of, hey, I can't do this because I don't know how to do this. When, you, when, you give, when you're given certain frameworks to work in, you can input anything. Good solutions can come out of it. And what fundamentally I got from that program was coming back with this philosophy that when you do good and when you generate enough uh, customer value, you will invariably make money. Every subject that we learned was taught with the lens of ethics, sustainability, and empathy, user empathy. And I know those words sound cliched as we were talking earlier, but to me, they were, they were highly valuable and, and gave me the tools to feel empowered, um, more self-aware, and, and I could... And it really helped me in my consulting career. And also when I was setting up an innovation lab with no agency and uh, hardly any resources, how to negotiate, how to request, how to form your case. Yeah, it's, I, I believe that designers can learn a ton if, if they just, you know, learn the language of business in some ways. And it has helped me in my design practice tremendously. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that you... Um, mentioned this lens of criticality in the work um, that you do, but also pairing that with a better understanding of business. And um, the critical aspect, I feel like, you know, we begin having these conversations around ethics and morals and things like that. And in practice and design, I feel like sometimes there's this tension between the, the morals and the ethics and then the business. <laughs> lens of it and is has there been any situations where you feel like you've had to navigate the tension between those oh yeah most certainly <laughs> and how have you navigated between those some some arguments and some nudges from my side uh, were success and some were not mm -hmm. but I think the strategies that are employed I mean most of them have been when I was working with startups or big companies in the user privacy scenario 
I think there were some times where I was just completely, completely baffled with some of the decisions that were being made from a business point of view, some of the KPIs that we, that the business team were establishing and KPIs being a key, key performance, performance indicators. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, some of those. And I, I just fundamentally had a moral value problem with, with them. And the way that I tried to express it is by perhaps telling, personalizing those stories. Uh, not only from point of view of persona, but making it sound like, hey, you have your friend of yours who's a girl. Like, would she like to publicize at all times her location? This was a particular instance where I was working with these five startup dudes, and they they literally had, and they were good people. Mm-hmm. I think they had no perspective of how does a woman navigate in the world, and their app was about broadcasting your location so that you can tell your friends, hey, I'm hanging out here. You want to hang out with me? And, you know, there are fundamental problems and problems that we're solving. You know, some of the, I think there are more compelling problems we can solve. But at the same time, you know, there are some basic user privacy problems that I don't think that they were considering. So personalizing those stories, making them more of a personal experience so that they can empathize with, hey, it's not just a business thing. It's a key problem that most of the people have. And other times, I think there have been moral and ethics issue regarding not having the user's perspective in the room. Other times, there were some key problems with sustainability issues um, Mm -hmm. and how we roll out some features. And my current role is actually in a company that we're trying to optimize the garment manufacturing industry through very smart tools uh, by reducing waste and reducing consumption. And some of these conversations like very often come up where, you know, we realize that there we can fundamentally change the way that garments are being sampled and made. And some of the conversations that come up over there are also I can't talk about them, but yeah, um, but some of those conversations that come there are also can be very challenging from a value perspective. And I try my best to bring the user point of view, sometimes even just having recorded videos of the research that we have done and playing it in front of executives, that really helps. Internalizing the personas, proliferating them across different teams, cross-functional assimilation of those ideas and values, reinforcing them over and over again in every presentation, every conversation, also really helps. Mm. Yeah, I think amplifying your voice, not feeling like you have a smaller voice because you're a designer, really helps. I think people employ us for that perspective and in my opinion, as jarring as it may feel, it's okay. It's okay to express your point of view because it's unique and because it's different. And you never know. It might make a difference sometime. This is something I really deeply, deeply care about. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in Bay Area, Silicon Valley, we cannot just say that, hey, it's someone else making those decisions. Those decisions are affecting the world right now. Mm-hmm. And we as designers also have a fundamental responsibility in shifting those conversations, bringing ethics in, in design more prominently and, and, and just saying it out loud that these decisions that are being made right now are just outrightly horrible. One of the tactics that I've thought of and it's been talked about in the design world is thinking of, always thinking of a bad, bad person prototype. You know, When you're thinking of, we always imagine the ideal situation when we're designing a product. This is an ideal customer, and this is this is the way that it will be used. And it's usually the most positive, most uh, sometimes altruistic thing that we imagine. But we never keep into account what if someone with bad intention 
uses this product? How is this person going to use this product? And just like we imagine all the use cases for a good user, we should imagine all the use cases that bad actor can use this product for mm-hmm. and trying to actively circumvent those yeah. when you're designing a product. I think we should actively do that, especially in more digital social media space, yeah. for sure. I think about the that card deck, that artifact. Uh, yeah, Cheryl. Created. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, last season, Cheryl Kababa uh, shared with us the... Tarot um, cards of tech. There we go. The tarot cards of tech. Have you have you heard of it? No. Um, oh. There are questions. These like really big questions that you pull from the deck that are ones that, as you're starting to think of, let's say this application, or you're, you're starting to think of going live with an app, you can reference these cards, and they have these large scenarios. What happens mm-hmm. when your user group goes to five million? You know, so. Starting off early, you're thinking just a handful, a couple hundred. When you are exponentially now having to think, how do you sustain uh, and maintain security? You maintain privacy. You maintain um, even having the the database in its functionality state uh, with so much stress upon it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you you bring that up because it's uh, one of those things that perhaps we as uh, design educators are failing to consider or Mm -hmm. failing to instill in upon our students Mm -hmm. that it's not just about producing something that is wonderful, functional, and uh, needed for the market, Mm -hmm. but what happens when it is distorted Mm -hmm. into a form that is not intended for use? Um, What happens Mm -hmm. when the values that you have are in conflict with the values of the user or with the values of the uh, client that mm-hmm. you're working with. What, what do you do in that sort of situation, whether you are an uh, independent contractor or you're an employee and that company has decided we can make more money by doing this and you don't want to do that? Mm-hmm. I don't think we, we give those kind of scenarios. No. Yeah. And how how to even put up that fight and how to manage your feelings when you lose that battle. Yeah. Like those are important considerations that we could we, sh- we emotionally should prepare our students because I think inherently designers just take on a lot of emotional stress. We're constantly managing different stakeholders. We're mani- we're working with the dev- devs, we're working with the business people, we're constantly um, trying to build a bridge through our artifacts or through through our work, even if it's not artifact. I, I think, I feel like there's a huge opportunity where we can prepare designers to manage that kind of an emotional burden. Well, one, one thing that I thought would be nice to circle back to you that we were talking about before was mm-hmm. uh, kind of managing as identity. How do you teach young designers to manage their their self-identity with the identity we take on at work? How do we navigate around decisions, right? As Mm -hmm. we were talking before, there's some decisions we would make at work that we may not make in our personal lives, and there's ethical consequences to that, and how do we navigate that? (laughs) No, I think it's it's perfectly valid. I, I think there are a bunch of things that enriches a human, and design is just one of those things, you know? Um, sometimes our profession defines our identity. It's a major part of our identity, and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that we should all be aware of all the different parts that come together that, ma that make us that wholesome person. I think most designers are doing design because they have to be passionate about it in some ways because today as well, you know, we are still fighting to have design at, get a seat on the table. Hmm. But I think there are different parts of a human. There are, I, I can speak for myself, there's an artist part of me, there's an artistic identity that I actively nourish. There's a part of me that is very interested in social impact work for women. I try to do that outside of my day job. And I think we got to, we got to, we got to pet, you know, all of these different parts of ourselves and love all these different parts of ourselves. So they start to interconnect and, and bring ideas, bring practices from one aspect of your personality to the other. And it sometimes, for me at least, you know, it, my artistic practice took away this deep need to constantly like have over creative work in design where I could just think of designing something for others because as a designer you're inherently serving mm -hmm. you have to serve others as an artist it's a place where I can be selfish I can serve myself mm -hmm. and, and I think that really lifts off the tension that I felt for a long time when I did not have a dedicated artistic practice mm -hmm. where I felt conflated like I want to have this creative expression but the project that I'm in currently doesn't allow for that. And it can be creatively frustrating. So I think it's nice to amalgamate different parts of you because they invariably affect and enrich your practice, whether it's a part of ourselves that is ethnic cultural uh, inheritance or whether it's artistic. And that kind of brings us into where we are right now. We're recording in your artist studio in Sausalito. Yes. Right? Um, can you maybe describe it a little bit for us of what, what we are surrounding ourselves? <laughs> you are you're in my creative space. It's a very sacred space for me and I'm really happy that you're here. I paint here. I make wearable art. Um, I do it over the weekends. Uh, I have a day job uh, and I do it on the on, in the nighttime, in the weekends and um, it's it's really it's really satisfying to do that. I'm a painter. Uh, I make I make textile art that is wearable. And we want to say thank you, of course, for letting us into the space. It, it was it's such uh, amazing work um, to be involved and to see the the process of how creativity can be sectioned off to a whole other atmosphere by the lens of design yeah. as well. So you look around and it's not the augmented reality it's not this but it is inspired by and informed with what you are doing nine to five or you know yeah. whatever the, the the hours of that yeah. um, i come from a liberal arts background where my department is in with fine arts mm -hmm. and we are very much an applied art but the students are required to take classes like painting and yeah. drawing and printmaking and sculpture, ceramics. And a lot of times students are, are often uh, questioning, well, yeah. why aren't we doing more design? Why aren't we doing these things? And I, and I remind them that you are doing design mm -hmm. by taking up painting. Yeah. You are doing design by going into the printmaking studio. Totally. It's just a matter of reframing what you are doing and you're also mm -hmm. allowing yourself a different medium to to experience yeah and hopefully that will enhance the overall process of whatever it is that you take on and 
I imagine that's that meaning something similar for you. Oh my God, in so many ways. I think there are two things that one could benefit from art as designers. And um, there's a book also, you know, Design as Art, you know, by Murat. And it's, it's a book I really, really love where, you know, he perceives design as almost an art. And, and, I, and I think there's some resonance to that. But when you're practicing art, there's so many things you can learn in terms of discipline, in terms of the emergent aspect of, of what comes out when you do art. When you start, you, you're dealing with an empty canvas. And as you start layering things more and more, something emerges, a narrative emerges. I think those are the things that we can learn from design, from art. And I have I had learned all these concepts of value, color, design, design in terms of how do you lay out elements and the, the form. And then I kind of just stayed away from those principles initially, but then now, now just applying those in compositions for my paintings. Mm-hmm. I think the principles remain the same. But the way, but how, what we're saying is different. As I said earlier, as an artist, you're serving yourself in so many ways and serving society because you're honoring your own narrative. Mm-hmm. But as a designer, you're serving your customers, you're serving your people, you're serving the company that you're working for, you're serving a point of view. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's, it's very, in, at least for me, it's been an interrelated pathway. Yeah. And when I was doing costume design work, there was a script. I had to work with a director. I had to make costumes for a protagonist. But at the same time, there were so many artistic elements to it. Like I think there's different mediums offer different allowances for creative expression. In the UI UX area, perhaps a less little bit, but now we're looking at so many digital art artists coming out. But yeah, there are different mediums afford different kind of creative expression. I love that overlap. I love the way that you are phrasing that as service, um, yeah. something that is uh, in honoring of information, in honoring of subject matter, in honoring of people that uh, I find very valuable. Um, yeah. That is something that we sometimes often forget or that designers are not seen as, mm-hmm. as well because design can be mystified by it's done on a computer and therefore it is kind of magical that you click some buttons you push a mouse mm-hmm. around and it happens yeah as opposed to a real deep meaning and understanding of both your experience the user's experience the information that you are reading and gathering as well as inspiration mm-hmm. um, and it's all serviceable to a common goal it, yeah. it's, it's all working towards something mm-hmm. yeah and i think as a designer you have to assimilate different points of views. Mm-hmm. You have to be that connector. And another big contrast is as an artist, you can be, you're absorbing, but you're creating alone. But I think I would, I would imagine design is essentially, you cannot just sit in a corner and design something. You have to talk to people. You have to bring their point of view in some ways or honor it. I, I often tell students that they are the glue between the client and the information. And I think on, at the end of the day, all humans want to be heard. But I think the, the best way to succeed in putting your point of view to every stakeholder is to just genuinely listen. Um, and there are so many different ways you can do that. You can, I, I tend to like do graphic recording. I literally draw when we talk so that... There's beauty in people seeing what they just said, the words that just dissipated into the air, being translated into 
written things on the wall. And I think that's a very basic human need. It, it, it's been successful every time I did, genuinely. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking one other thing that I feel like we haven't really touched on, uh, the idea of working in social impact. And I think, a, I think this other thing that I'm also particularly interested in is the additional considerations that need to go in to doing that kind of work. When I was in India, I worked with organizations. I, it's my dream to create uh, a world where underprivileged women have financial freedom. Mm -hmm. And I think I've plugged myself in these sort of ways, never internally, but from the outside. I've always been designer, educator. I've worked in India in nonprofit organizations that helped women who had certain skills to make money. Yeah. And I've worked here uh, with IDEO.org in their endeavors in Eastern Africa. And I was essentially practicing and teaching design thinking to the local nonprofits. And there were a couple of projects, you know, along with big foundations like Packard Foundation, PSI. And we went to different countries like Rwanda, Ethiopia, Tanzania. And we would actually have five-day immersions, you know, the small like sprint format work, you know, that's informed by real research. And I think what I learned from that is that when you go in international situations where you are, you're just a visitor, you know, you, I can, I, I cannot say that for India, but when I enter Africa and I speak to girls there, and this was all in sexual reproductive health space, in preventing teenage pregnancies, creating more academic opportunities for girls, etc., talking about contraception, very sensitive, culturally very sensitive topics. And I think the way to do that is never to have a prescriptive narrative. And that's why the work that I think we did was so meaningful because we were working with the local nonprofits, local people on the ground, and working with them uh, and, and practicing design thinking methodologies in a short, condensed, like four or five day format. Um, I, I like that method because you're empowering them. Uh, you know, you're just sharing your experiences and they can implement that uh, in their own way, in their own culturally appropriate way. And we are not interjecting the ebbs and flows of their day to day. I remember like we were in Ethiopia and there was this person who just didn't believe in whatever we we're doing. It's like, what is this rapid prototyping? And, and we were rapid prototyping like uh, program ideas, you know, and our, our team came up with uh, reframing um, girls' education. And we learned on the field that when we say a smart family, it resonates better than say, hey, you should go educate your girls. Mm -hmm. And when we were on the field and we actually overnight, you know, we, we hired a writer, we hired an oud player that we recruited from a restaurant, and we created a song. And we went to a local, like, nonprofit there that hosts all these girls and family, and we started singing that song. And, and the response that we got from them was just so profound that this person who was working with local nonprofit there just felt like, he just literally said, oh, now I know what is rapid prototyping. <laughs> I think when you, I think that was also very beautiful to see that sometimes non-conformists can be persuaded to believe if you actually show them. And that's, that's the beauty of design. And I think social impact space has such an immense opportunity. It's, it's, an op it's a place where designers should enter more, I feel like, because the, uh, the number of lives you're touching um, is, is, really, is really impactful. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, my, it's my dream to be there, um, and I'm working towards it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, Anu, that was so inspiring. Thank you so much uh, Thank for you. that. Thank you for having me. Before we, uh, before we conclude, we usually try to get some recommendations uh-huh. uh, from our guests. So my, uh, my first request for a recommendation is um, we are here in San Francisco Bay Area. Uh-huh. Uh, what would you, what's a recommended place to go that's perhaps uh, culturally interesting or has a cool design aesthetic or uh, just a, a must-see for the area? For the science, science-minded people, Exploratorium is a good place to explore. And um, there's also, I, I, I love Essigmoma here um, and Diong museum um both are my favorites Uh, i'm always curious about what people are reading these days so Uh i was curious if you had um an article or a book or an audio book or something that you'd listened to or read lately that you thought made an impact on you and your perspective that would be beneficial to share to others i'm reading this book by called no ashes in the fire Mm -hmm. um and it's a it's a book that is giving me so much of an insight in the struggle of African-American people in this country. And it's written by this amazing, pure African-American man who's narrating his own experiences of growing up in Camden. And he's an author, he's a beautiful poet, and it's, yeah, I love that book. And also reading this another book called Three Women. It's a nonfiction book, but feels like fiction on the lives of these ama- amazing th- three different women. Um, women that she actually the author actually personally spoke to yes i'm interested in a recommendation for um because i'm a faculty member at at, uh, at an institution what would be a class that you would recommend design students should be taking right now class yeah i, I mean something outside of art and design i i don't know but learning basic economics it's so out there mm-hmm. it's like not but it really, really helped me because I didn't, as I said, I didn't have any business background. I had a science background in my high school. Also, my personal goal is to <laughs> learn about financial management. <laughs> like things that are so outside of our interest areas, but they're like important functional skills. Um, it, it just gives us a language to speak to our stakeholders better. Yeah, I think economics is a good one. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> the last recommendation I was curious about is was music. I don't know if you listen to a lot of music, but I'm curious what you're listening to now. Um, I listen to so many different... I like sort of this electronic world music. Mm. I'm listening right now to... I mean, he's one of the people I listen to, this Persian artist, Bayramji, Niels Foram, John Hopkins, Bob Moses. Mm-hmm. So many. Yeah, there are a ton of, like... I, I'm I'm Sufi music uh, fan... I love Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. And a bunch of other Persian artists that I'm now exposed to thanks to my partner. Do you listen to music or podcasts or audiobooks when you're designing? I listen to a ton of music. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately can't listen to podcasts when I'm working, but I love On Being by Krista Tippett. Oh, yes. It's like yes. my morning morning ritual. I also like listening to New York Daily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very well done. Lenny, thank you so much for spending your time with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me here on your podcast. I feel really, really, really honored. We are extremely honored. Thank you.
This is Design School is recorded in the field where design happens. The music for This is Design School is composed and recorded by Michael R. Clark. You can find Michael online at musiclabtacoma.com. For additional information about each of our episodes, visit thisisdesign.school. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what you want to hear on the show. Follow the podcast on Twitter at TIDSpodcast or join the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and share us with your designer friends. Stay safe, stay healthy, 